Good morning. Today is Thursday, September 15th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'm glad you've tuned in. Whether it be over the air, online at KFUO, or through the KFUO app, or even through your favorite podcasting app, settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hello, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. And don't forget, tomorrow and every Friday, I'll open up the listener mailbag and I'll share your comments or answer your questions. But as for today, we have stepped back in time once again to ancient Corinth. Corinth, as large as it is, and you've heard us talk about, it certainly has its fair share of virtuous and morally upstanding people, the growing Christian population among them. But there is also much hidden and open vice, including sexual sins. This licentious behavior, like many other sinful practices, have crept their way into the Corinthian church. And St. Paul isn't having any of that, as you'll see in today's reading, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. So this morning, to help us examine St. Paul's admonitions, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest the Reverend Christopher Gillespie. He's pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Random Lank, Wisconsin, and he's also co-host and producer of the weekly podcast Band Books, put on by 1517. Pastor Gillespie, welcome to Thy Strong Word. It's good to be here. I'm glad to to join uh, the listeners and study of God's Word. Excellent. I'm so happy to have you on. I'm going to have to check out your podcast sometime, too. I'm afraid that I actually have not listened yet, but I will. But I tell you what, I'm going to give you just a few moments. Share with our listeners a little bit about how God is working through your ministry and maybe through your congregation, what that looks like. Yeah. So uh, the podcast, by the way, is very different than yours. It's a uh, long form, as they say. Um, you know, there's a few more secular podcasts like that where they just have, we have long conversations and uh, we read um, old books, often books that you've either been told not to read or maybe might, you know, be a little dangerous. <laughs> mm. um, but we read it critically through, you know, eyes of, we're both Lutheran pastors, Missouri Synod pastors. So, right. Okay. Um, that sounds interesting. Who is the other co host, if I may ask? Uh, Pastor Donovan Riley uh, from okay. Webster, Minnesota. Yeah. So, um, but that's only a little bit of what I do. Uh, I obviously pastor full time here at the congregation, and in Sherman Center is what we call it, uh, the center of Town Sherman in Sheboygan County. So we're in one of the what do you want to say, um, promised lands of of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I guess Fort Wayne, St. Louis are kind of the homes. Maybe the Franken Colonies is another one, right? <laughs> sure. And here Sheboygan County, I think I don't know what it is. Twenty five congregations in one county. So wow. uh, there's a density, um, but I'm about two miles out of Random Lake and I'm at the farthest um, south part of the county. And so it's historically a rural farm community, still is for the most part. And uh, my congregation re- reflects that as well. We have some people that drive in you know, from town, but quite a few still have operating farms. And uh, 
that poses, well, not really challenges in some ways <laughs> because it's so typical of old Missouri. Um, you know, even the size of the congregation is that, uh, you know, it's a joy to serve here. Um, and it's, it's, it's very predictable in that way, you know, small town, farm town. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with, you know, a little bit of predictability, especially in today's <laughs> world where, oh, we could use a little bit more of that, I think. Well, and, and I, you know, to be honest, it's, that's how it looks on the outside. Uh, but on the inside, you'll find the same sort of things that are happening all around us, you know, unfortunately. And so, you know, the same challenges I think most pastors experience are just as prominent here. Maybe that's just because of the nature of our world, right? That, um, we're very mobile, but also uh, you have infinite communication ability. You can uh, discover anything you'd like to discover for, for good or for ill. And so, yeah, that's just as much a challenge here as it probably is in, a, in an urban or suburban congregation, which I've served in those too. So um, I've had all sorts. I currently serve in a little bit more of a rural congregation myself, a small <laughs> town, I guess would be a better way to say it. And so I can appreciate having lots of farmers, um, lots of townies too, who work different types of jobs. Uh, really down-to-earth folks, great folks, but it is. There are some contextual differences between, say, a congregation like mine, a congregation like yours, maybe one that's in an urban inner city, one that's, as you said, in the suburbs, you know, kind of um, hmm. mom and soccer mom and that sort of thing congregation. And, and, of course, Christ wants us to reach out to all these people. And one thing that is consistent and predictable is that we are all congregations of sinners. Mm-hmm. And we need that continual reminder and not just reminder but you know declaration proclamation application of the gospel to our lives and you know we're going to be reading today about some pretty sensitive topics for those who are uh, wondering what we're going to be talking about talking about sexual immorality and that's also a topic in our world that finds uh, it, it it just it's just so prevalent in our society has been for so long but now even among even among places where normally you would think that ah, we're going to be a little bit more discreet about it. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. and it's so out in the open. And so you might think that, well, I live in a rural congregation or I, I'm sorry, rural area. And I go to a rural congregation. Uh, we don't have the same kinds of issues with these types of things as they might do in an urban or suburban or, you know, whatever you're comparing yourself to. And the reality is that, yeah, it's everywhere. I'm glad you brought that out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we begin and dig into our text, I think it'd be prudent if you'd begin us with God's word, please, uh, or or rather (laughs) with prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have gathered us together into um, a congregation of sinners forgiven in the name of Jesus, made saints uh, through that forgiveness. We ask that you would um, convict our hearts by your law, that we would see our sin and be returned uh, in repentance to Uh, your word, that we would be forgiven in the name of Jesus, and that we would live out our lives in that forgiveness together um, as your holy community. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are going to dig into the text. Our text for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading just a few verses to get us started, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, 
and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Just five verses, brother pastor, but pretty heavy. Um, you know, we hear about don't judge others and we hear about uh, uh, all the ways that gentleness and kindness with which we're supposed to deal with our fellow brother's sins. St. Paul, he says, I cannot believe this is going on. I do believe it, but I can't believe it. And you need to kick that guy out. <laughs> What's going on here? Let's let's start off right at the top. Yeah. I, and, you know, you've been uh, you probably most of your listeners have been paying attention, hopefully. Um, chapters one through four, right, have been dealing with divisions within the church. And then it, it almost seems like he just takes a left-hand turn here. And, and so, well, now we're going to talk about uh, sins of the body, you know, in the first year, this this immorality in the congregation, very specific example. But, you know, he'll keep going for a couple chapters and marriage and divorce um, and, and the like. And so what, what he's doing, I think, is he's, he's going from like a broad picture, you know, with all the kind of factions, you know, divisions, what do you want to call these? clicks, I guess, within the church. And he's he's working his way down into a very narrow kind of focus. And he's actually going to come back, I think, later on in the book when he's dealing with the practice of the Lord's Supper um, and and showing how that that ultimately is the the like the central division that's happening in the church is that they they're not discerning the body and blood of Christ. And then because they're not doing that, you know, this is what chapter um, 10 through 10 and 11, right? That because they're not discerning that, they're also not discerning their own uh, need for forgiveness. And so they're not actually listening to the way that the word of God diagnoses the sin in their hearts and in their practice. And in this case, a very obvious practice happening right out in the open. Um, one which Paul seems, I mean, he's not even in Corinth and yet he knows about it. Um, there's a suggestion later in, in our reading that you haven't read yet that he had even written about it previously to them maybe. Um, we don't have those letters. This is the first letter we have from him. But uh, this seems to be a, a regular ongoing problem and in uh, uh, its particular, what, what did he describe it? Oh, uh, uh, someone has, like with an ongoing relationship, his father's wife. So probably his stepmother would be, I think, the way to understand it. He would have just come out straight up that it was his, his mother, if that were the case. That's interesting. So you're saying that there's some, uh, some caveat here that we should consider when he says, for a man has his father's wife. Yeah. Um, I don't think it makes it any better. Uh, mm. I, I wouldn't want to use that as an excuse to say that, you know, this is not, this is, this is okay. Cause it's his stepmom, right? He obviously is very, very upset with this. Um, <laughs> but in terms of levels yeah. of sin, I suppose it's a smidge better than an Oedipal type of relationship. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that the law actually makes that distinction. Um, so like Leviticus 18 in particular is, is in mind here that, that, uh, the son who uncovers, um, you know, his, his father's nakedness, which would be his mother, um, they would both be stoned, both of them having committed this kind of adultery. Now, I do notice that the English Standard Version does translate that the similar way. He says, you shall, mm -hmm. this is Le Leviticus 18.8, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. So yeah, it's sort of exactly. the same language, at least in the way that they're translating it. Yeah, the nakedness of your mother is to like bring shame upon your father and they have that guilt shame kind of culture, which maybe that's part of uh, the challenge of our reading this, especially with the sexual mores have been really set aside for the most part uh, culturally in the world around us. Um, even 
it, increasingly so day by day, it seems like, that we don't even understand what it means to be ashamed, you know, of our behavior, um, right. having lack, uh, lost kind of a sense of what, just like a moral foundation that would actually guide our, our actions and behavior. Well, one of the things we talked about yesterday was it's, he writes in the previous chapter, verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. Mm-hmm. But then just in a actually the next chapter, chapter six, verse five, he says, I say this to your shame. <laughs> Can it be that there is no one among you? And then in chapter 15, he says, He doesn't necessarily say shame or no, he does say shame. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor. I say this to your shame. So he starts off, I think, in a little bit more of a, I'm going to get more flies with honey than vinegar mode. But then, you know, he's zealous for not only the law of God, but for the people of this congregation. Mm -hmm. He loves them as a father loves his children. And so I think that's where if we're sensing any anger, I think that's where we're getting it. It's do we call it righteous indignation? I don't know, but he's mad. And he's mad because he loves these people. Well, and he makes an interesting point there that I think we probably should bring out is is that this behavior wouldn't even be known among the pagans, you know, the the farmer types, <laughs> if you like. Um right. the paganos from from the Latin, right? You know, the 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 rural, the 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 less what do you want to say? Um, you know, well-mannered people. <laughs> Sure. Uh, like the they common be- people. Yeah, the common people. Yeah, they don't even behave this way. Uh, and it was prohibited by by Roman law too at the time of, of you know of this writing. So I'm not a hundred percent sure where I, I got this. I read it probably in a commentary somewhere, but they said that the that there's a word that means in this in this time that meant literally to live in sexual license and wantonness, and that word was Corinthianize. I mean, obviously it would have been in Greek, but the idea like is it. that this idea of sexual promiscuity was literally named after the city where this church is. Well, I think and, there's a distinct reason for that, right? And that um, the kind of the center of the life of the town um, was the temple to Artemis, right? I think it's Artemis. And then connected with with the cult of Artemis is, you know, all the, the cultic prostitution that happens there as part of the worship of, you know, this false deity. And that that has to do with the meat sacrificed to idols, which will come up later too. So, I mean, it's like the center of, I mean, this is why people would travel there is to visit this, this cultic temple and and prostitution was part of it. I'm glad you brought that out because one of the things we've been trying to get across to the listeners or help them understand, and of course, learn myself as I go through this, that, you know, this town of Corinth or the city of Corinth was a real place. It it had Mm -hmm. real people and, and real geography and topology and history. And, you know, it's not just some story imagined in the head of a Greek philosopher. This is real stuff. And so to remind the listeners that there is a temple here and part of that temple worship was literally prostitution, joining oneself with a prostitute. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not going to be uncommon for it to get that reputation. It's like, oh, you know, maybe, and I don't want to offend any of my brother pastors, but I'm thinking, you know, maybe uh, New Orleans, you know, a hundred years ago, <laughs> if you were going into deep New Orleans, there are certain parts of New Orleans a hundred years ago, or maybe today, you might be accused of being in the wrong area, or at least in the area for the wrong dis- reasons. Uh, the red light district of mm-hmm. Amsterdam, you know, other places. Yeah. 
Yeah, because what happens, I think, is then the behavior becomes normalized in one setting and it just finds its way out into, you get acclimated to it and it finds your, its way out into the rest of life. So, um, and, and the word there, I mean, it's interesting um, that for sexual immorality, you know, is from, for uh, porneia, right? Um, which is connected, we know pornography, which is connected right. mostly, well, to images. But, um, but here, I mean, it, it literally does mean to like sell oneself over you know, to something else, like a, as a, you know, a sexual slave, basically. And um, so the, there is this kind of captivating spirit that's attached to that kind of um, behavior. And so I, I can't help but wonder if, like, if you're going to uh, commit yourself to a temple prostitute, well, then you're probably not going to view your marriage the same way anymore either, right? Right. Um, yeah, maybe, what, what do they call it today? Open marriage, an open marriage, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. There's this idea out there, uh, for those of you who may not know, boy, <laughs> blessings if you don't. Yeah. But, you know, this isn't new. I mean, we we saw this out of the um, out of the 60s into the 70s, the, uh, you know, the free love movement, that sort of thing, where, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's sexual gratification and fornication without, uh, without relationship, without commitment mm-hmm. to one another. Right. And it ruins... I think undoubtedly, even from secular psychologists and therapists will tell you that this can ruin relationships and marriages. So it's not just that God, or in this case, specifically St. Paul, is a prude. (laughs) It's that these things are detrimental to your health, detrimental to your spirit. Mm -hmm. And and that's why the Levitical law is important. Um, The way Moses articulates it, I think, in Deuteronomy as well, this is not, this is just not some kind of, well, pastor's telling us to do something and it's just his opinion, right? Which uh, you and I probably both experienced at times. Uh, no, this is in, you know, the word of God. This is God's own word and you need to hear it. And and I do agree with you. I think he's been, for lack of a better way of saying it, buttering up the, the people so that they're uh, prepared to receive this judgment because it appears um, that they're not even, ash- they're not ashamed of it anymore um, if they ever were. And as a matter of fact, they're even kind of proud of it. Right, and that word, I think uh, you translated, or the ESV says it's arrogant, that they were arrogant. Right. Um, the word there is technic- is literally puffed up, right? right. You know, like, like inflated or something. Inflated, and and I think that's helpful because it's going to come up in, in the next part of the reading as well. You know, this idea of being puffed up or proud of it. Um, I couldn't help but think of, what month is it, June? That, that's called Pride Month? <laughs> right. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're being taught or told or even catechized by the world around us that, uh, you know, all sorts of what we would consider sexual deviancy, uh, you know, contrary to God's word, is something not to, not to tolerate or even um, to celebrate, but actually to condone, to actually promote uh, and to be proud of. And at least from what Paul's saying here, it seems as if they're they're actually not ashamed, but even worse, they're proud of, or at least the people committing this sin are proud of it. Like, look at what we've done. And um, maybe this is connected to the idea that like in the gospel where we've been set free, and uh, of course, <laughs> we can use that freedom f- uh, for a license for, for evil, which Paul talks about elsewhere, Romans in particular, I guess. Uh, and so they they've they seem to like be so deceived that they don't even recognize that what what they're doing uh, is contrary um, to to their own nature, natural law, if you like, the law of creation, uh, and explicit in in the Old Testament texts if they know those texts at all. And so he's bringing that to their remembrance. I I get this sense that the uh, the congregation is living in this metropolitan uh, mm-hmm. city, and they're. 
I think part of them, certainly, because these are Christians, remember, we're dealing with, and I think part of them in general want to appeal to the pagans of their day. They, they look out in the city and they say, here's people that we want to join our congregation or join you know, the faith, however they thought about it in those times. Mm-hmm. And so he's, they're saying, listen, we want to draw these people in. So we couldn't possibly, not in the eyes of the Corinthians, be prude. So we're going to be a little relaxed when it comes to certain practices. And then, of course, that you know, becomes a slippery slope. And they've gotten to the point now where it's not that we're just going to be chill when it comes to, you know, okay, yeah, you have a, a couple concubines. Well, you know, we're chill to that. <laughs> it's come that slippery slope to the point where, yeah, there's a guy in the congregation that has his father's wife. And, right. and Paul wouldn't condone either. But it, it's also, and again, I don't want to take it too far, but it, it gives us a reminder that the, the church is not to be here to uh, mimic the culture, even if we think we're doing it for good reasons. You know, let's mimic the culture so that they'll be attracted or at least recognize themselves in what we do. And then they'll want to come and be a part of us. And the answer is, even if you were to do that, at some point, you have to proclaim God's law and gospel. And then that's going, they're going to reject that. So why even do the bait and switch? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a cover for evil for their, for their own hearts. Um, a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but but sometimes at least. The behavior that one accepts in others, um, even though they know it, you know it's wrong, you do so in order to cover for your own, you know, willingness or interest or desire to to approve that kind of behavior. So, you know, and then you called it a slippery slope, but I, but um, you know, it, and some of it's cowardice, I suppose, as well, and that you don't want to appear to be the bad guy. Uh, my experience, though, it, it's better to set out before uh, the unbelieving world really the best version of of who God would have you be, right? And to clearly articulate, this is what we believe, teach, and confess. And uh, yes, there are some who are going to um, dislike you, even hate you for it, right? But then there are others who say, um, I had never heard this before. I didn't even know that there were people who still, you know, thought this way. You know, I kind of thought that way myself, but, you know, I just thought, well, it's just not who we are anymore. Uh, we did this as a congregation, speaking of practically, mm-hmm. uh, art- we articulated because of the changes happening around us, um, called it a, a statement. Now it's actually a policy on uh, marriage, sexuality, and um, gender, I think is is the title. And we wanted to clearly articulate from God's word, um, here's what the Bible has to say about these things. And um, and we actually asked the congregation, new members, parents of, of our school children, um, not only to agree with the statement, but, but to live their lives according to it. And... Uh, we know that that's probably in the long run going to start to cause some cha- be some challenging for a lot of people who may otherwise have thought, hey, they could be a part of the parish or part of the um, the school, and yet um, really taking, I think, taking direction here from First Corinthians fifteen, um, you know, the apostle would say, uh, no, you need to exclude them from your community until uh, such day they repent, and uh, and then welcome them home again. So. Well, that's, it is interesting, and I would be interested as a fly on the wall to see how that continues with your congregation. Mm-hmm. It's never the wrong thing to stand up for God's word. But as you know, yeah, we're going to receive, depending on our context, depending on where our congregations are, increasing levels of pushback from the world. So the pastor I spoke to not too long ago, who's you know right on the outskirts of uh, Seattle, you know, mm-hmm. he might have a different experience mm-hmm. than you do trying to implement such a thing. Or if you were in uh, 
like but, uh, San Francisco or, you know, a, a specific absolutely. to this issue, you know, a, a very sexually deviant are known to be a sexually deviant community. Uh, you might have to speak a little bit more gently, um, you know, even to get have somebody walk in your door. And I think about that, too, because I think, well, even even in San Francisco, certainly there are Christians there, faithful mm-hmm. Christians. So what are the yeah. what are the what are the, the the struggles that they face and, you know, how would they have received if someone in their congregation is involved in this deviant behavior? And here comes Paul or rather, mm-hmm. in this case, they actually read First Corinthians and, you know, chat, verse two says, you know, let him who has done this be removed from you. Now, he goes on in the text we've already covered to explain the goal of that. But right. that first part, I, I would say, has been lacking among most congregations in terms of spiritual discipline, either on fear from the pastor's point of view, the lack of support from the other leadership, or the lack of understanding from the congregation altogether. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, well, and I don't, without giving any specific examples, um, this is actually, I think, common experience uh, for our pastors. Maybe not this particular um, sexual sin, right. um, but you know we've talked quite a bit about um, living as husband and wife without without actually receiving the gift of of, of marriage, um, and that happens with young people and old people alike. And it, it, there's what happens, at least in my experience, is that people engage in this behavior and it becomes again kind of normalized, uh, or at least accepted within the within the parish. No one says boo about it. Um, and in some cases, you know, the parents uh, or other family uh, not only look the other way, but support it. And yet then they'll come and say, well, now we want the gift of marriage, even though we've been living as married. And I just have to remind you, you've already been married in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> you've you've right. uh, uh, embraced it, whether you acknowledged it or not. Uh, but let's, you know, uh, let's, let's confess, let's be forgiven and, and receive the blessing of the Lord towards uh, your life moving forward. Uh, but... But again, the experience is that people are, I don't know if they're if they're arrogant or proud or, or just that using that word puffed up, but they're not willing to to say anything. And and maybe it's, I think it's probably hardest when it's with family members um, or, or friends, right? To, to speak the truth and say it in a loving way, which means, you know, in service to, <laughs> to the truth um, for the purpose of restoration, you know, uh, of the person to faithfulness. That that's just not easy to do. So we really were covering the two least popular subjects in the church today, which would be um, two of the least popular, at least, uh, sexual behavior, and then excommunication would be the other one. Right. Well, I think right. one of the things too that we find is the the uh, the view of pastoral authority to mm. exercise this spiritual spiritual discipline. So mm-hmm. you imagine pastors in the forties and fifties, and of course before, and they sort of had a. A positional authority. They had authority insofar as they were the called pastor, and as long as they didn't abuse that authority, that authority was respected. doesn't mean it was always liked. It doesn't mean they didn't have people who caused them problems, but there was positional authority. In this day and age, there appears to be more of a relationship authority where (laughs) you have to build relationships with people in order to earn the authority that is yours. Paul, he'd have a a tough time today because Paul throughout this letter already, and he will continue. He does the same thing in Romans a little bit, even though he didn't even plant the Roman church, but he planted this church and he makes it clear that he's on his way. And when he gets there, things better be cleaned up. And here in this, these few verses, you know, if, even though I'm gone, I'm not there, Mm -hmm. I'm still there. I'm still in charge in terms of being his authority as a apostle. 
And as if I was present, I've pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Who is Paul to pronounce judgment? Only God can judge, right? I think I read that in Paul. (laughs) Right. Yes. And he's been given a vocation uh, as, in his case, missionary, I suppose, missionary pastor or some kind, whatever title you want to give him. Um, he sees that that the Lord has given him authority to speak the word to these people, and um, in a sense, let the Spirit do His work. I think Paul would would teach us that is that you know the, our our job is not necessarily to be um, the one who pronounces final judgment, um, but to pronounce what the judgment would be on the last day, and that and that's what's going on here is they they need to be excluded so that they recognize um, their sin according to God's word. And again, with the goal of repentance, which he said um, there at the end of verse five, right, that it, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Um, the goal there is is that the person be restored uh, in the name of Jesus um, to to the congregation, right? And what I think the other aspect that we haven't really talked about, but is really important here, is that throughout this epistle, Paul sees this sexual sin as being actually the one of the chief divisive issues in the congregation. It actually is dividing the congregation. And we don't, I, I just don't think we actually believe that because like I mentioned with, um, uh, you know, people living outside of marriage, but as if they're married, uh, we've seen this with, um, what I would guess we call unlawful divorces, you know, just out of convenience or, you know, without due cause that these things can can really wreck a congregation. Uh, you probably know of one or two where this has happened, especially if it's in, amongst the pastor, but even if it's not, even if it's part of the, the parish, uh, because it's if it's permitted, if it's looked the other way and, and not um, repented and absolved, then it, it kind of festers like a wound. I had this, I inherited this situation actually in my first parish. So I walked in, seminary grad, you know, naive and dumb, uh, which is, I think, common to all seminary graduates. Yeah, right, sure. <laughs> and I wasn't told. And there was a couple living in adultery in the congregation um, who had been excluded from another congregation in the circuit. Um, and this was all, it was very much like this situation. It was out in the open. Everybody in the congregation knew what they were doing. The It was a sister congregation um, where their spouses were, respectively. And they had been set apart, but they were coming to mind. And nobody wanted to do anything about it. And they just they they let this persist for years up until I came, um, and then I had the audacity to just say, "You guys need to cut it out." You know, you need how to was that received? Um, well, they ended up leaving the parish, you know, attending. Right. They weren't members, but they ended up finding um, another, I guess, quote unquote, Christian church that would receive them. He ended up drinking himself to death, and it was oh. really tragic. Yeah, you know, it was, and that an is tragic. And, and behind that tragedy is mm-hmm. another issue besides the positional authority of pastors, but also the fact that the church has no authority in the lives of people anymore if they can just hop to another so-called church and, you know, have their itching ears scratched. Hey, brother, we're up against a break, so let's pause for just a few moments. We're going to listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Gillespie and I will continue our discussion of this very spicy topic, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll see you on the other side. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus, 
from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Christopher Gillespie, pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Random Lake, Wisconsin. All right, Pastor, before the break, we were oh, we were put in sort of a down spot. Of course, this whole text is a very law-based uh, text, but at the same time, it speaks so relevantly to our world today. I'd like to get the rest of the text that we have for today, the rest of the chapter, on the table for us to discuss. Mm-hmm. But is there anything else you want to cover before I do that? Yes. Um, you asked one question before the break, and I think we need to answer it, about you know pastors acting within authority, um, oh, thank in you. particular yes. of excommunicating. We, we have two kind of, this is for our listeners to understand, there, there's two exclusions that we typically use. One is from the supper which we call, the, I think, the minor ban, right? Then there's uh, then there's excommunication when you're excluded from the congregation, uh, which is more significant. Um, so usually it progresses that way. Um, but in but in practice, and this came out of this straight out of the small catechism that the office of the keys is is that gift given to the church, right? Uh, but normally exercised through the pastor, but in collaboration with the church. And um, so Luther would counsel us, and I, I, Walter does. Uh, very explicitly in in his book, Church and Ministry, you know, one of the founders of Missouri Synod, um, that we can't carry out excommunication unilaterally as pastor, but uh, we would do it with the information of the congregation so that before it happens, the congregation is presented. There may be another side of the story that we don't know, right, for example, or another perspective that we haven't taken into account. But also they they ultimately, because they're the, the people are being excluded from that parish, um, I think the whole congregation needs to know, at least the regular attending ones, uh, kind of the reasons why. Um, this is usually only very public sin, of course. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't reveal it to them. And uh, that way, they can actually defend your actions as a pastor. Right. They understand why. They may not like it, but um, in my experience, that's the. I've, thankfully, it's only been a few times. Um, it's absolutely necessary that it go before elders and council and, and voters. They the whole congregation has been informed. They see it. They they don't like it, but they understand that this is necessary. Um, and it, then it, practice usually is self-exclusion today. So that's the right. other aspect of this. We don't tell people to leave. They're just like, I'm mad and I'm just going to leave. And then we declare them left. There's pragmatic reasons too to what you're saying. And you've already mentioned a couple of them, but the reason why a pastor needs to work cooperatively with the congregation in these very serious issues is one, as you've already put it out, so they can back you up, right? This is not something, dear pastor, you want to be doing on your own. No. And um, even if you feel like you have some authority to do that, it, without working with the rest of the congregation, you're really alienating yourself. And then secondly, you know, the pastor then has not only that support, but that public witness against the the sin that's going on. Mm-hmm. And it may end up convicting others in the congregation, at which point then they also have opportunity to confess and be forgiven. And isn't that the isn't that the goal, right? And for the you said the minor ban, I've always called it the lesser ban. I've heard it both mm-hmm. ways, but this really is nothing more. And it sounds dramatic, but it's really nothing more than saying, I think 
your sin and the, your desire or your lack of desire to confess and repent of that sin will put you in danger if you were to continue to take the Lord's Supper. So I want you, until we can come to some resolution of this, not put yourself in danger. And so, yes, it's definitely law. It definitely is throwing the person into this position to have to either defend their sinful behavior or acknowledge it. But again, just like Paul here, all of these things are done out of love so that, as he says, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A little discomfort now on the beha- on behalf of the pastor and the congregation and the penitent person will hopefully yield a salvation in the day to come. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. as soon as you, as soon as you, dear listeners, if you, if you haven't experienced this, and I hope you haven't experienced it personally, but as a pastor, as soon as you issue a lesser ban, 99.9% of the time, they're going to now self-exclude themselves. They're just going to go somewhere else. Mm, unfortunately, yeah. And, and our relationship with other congregations and pastors, um, is a special attention and focus uh, needs to be made. And uh, I've actually begun this <laughs> just recently here in our circuit just to say, okay, here's what happens when somebody is not going you know, to the parish that they've attached themselves to um, by membership. You know, it, it, it's it's important that the brother pastor and that congregation inform one another because there may be this outstanding sin that needs to needs to be um, confessed, and maybe maybe it can be better confessed to another pastor before they can be restored to your fellowship. There's ways that that could happen, and but it is again, it's always for the benefit of um, the sinner that they receive the gift of forgiveness, and for the benefit of the congregation because we're better when we're all together. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to move on, and we can continue this conversation, but I just want to put the the text on the table, and I'm going to begin with verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 13. Here we go. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedies and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. I mean, he, he doesn't in this chapter, and this is one problem that we've discussed on this program before, it's so difficult to divide these things up. First of all, it's difficult to divide up Paul anyway. I've just finished Romans a few weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, and you know Paul's arguments just spill into one chapter, into the next, into the next, because he didn't write them with chapters. Mm-hmm. And here's really the same way. You know, we cannot take, for instance, you wouldn't want to preach uh, all of chapter five as its own discrete sermon because there's no there's no real gospel here. I mean, there is, and we can certainly pull it out, the effective preacher, but he's being very law-focused here because that is what's required when people are comfortable with their sins. Yeah. And so he's talking about leaven and leavening the whole lump. So what's going on here, Pastor? Take us through it. 
Well, to your point, I think Paul is a, a master um, at, re- at rhetoric, you know, that ancient art of, of crafting. Oh, well, in this case, it's a letter, but it's a letter meant, it's an epistle. It's meant to be read out loud to this congregation. And so he's, he is crafting an argument um, and he's, he's, he's dropping little hints actually in this section that will all come out later on. Um, when I, when I think he gets to the thrust of the argument is that they're actually, uh, there's this one example of sin is, is a, actually a small example of all the sin that's happening that is ultimately sin against uh, the body of Christ as a congregation, but, but the body and blood in the supper as well. So, so he, yeah, it's well-crafted and it, it's worth sitting down and reading a whole book at a time. I don't know how long this would take, probably 45 minutes, maybe, maybe even less right. to read the whole book. Uh, to your point about the leaven, uh, what he's doing here is he's drawing the people's attention to a story that would be all too familiar to them. It's really the, one of the central, if not the central story of the Old Testament scriptures, which is the Exodus. And uh, just as Jesus uses um, the uh, being in exile or in bondage as a, as a picture of our captivity um, to sin, you know, like being captivity, being in captivity in Egypt, uh, and Pharaoh being kind of like a picture of the devil. Luther picks up on this extensively in the small catechism as well. Um, Paul's using it here too. You know, the, that Passover um, event is really what's, what he's suggesting needs to happen to these these folks, is that they need to be excluded outside the home um, that would have been, had the blood of the lamb painted on its doorpost and on its lintel. Uh, if if one was inside that home and receiving the meal, then the angel of death would pass over. But if if one's outside that home on that night, um, it means death to them, or at least to their firstborn. And so he's using that picture to show that um, you know there was that strict judgment in in Egypt against unbelief, uh, the unbelief of Pharaoh and his host, right, and his and that nation. One of the parts of that story I think would be helpful, though. You mentioned. You know, we need a little gospel, and I know you like to do that at the end of the show, but we could do some here too. Mm-hmm. Always, which is, which is that um, part of the story that we miss is a, is a large number of Egyptians left with Israel. Um, we know that I mean Moses himself was married to an Egyptian woman, so uh, so that that salvation did extend not not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles, as you know, of course the the gospel promise was given, right, to go to right. to the all nations. Uh, that even is true for the exodus and so you know this repentance that that um, i think paul would like well greatly desires um, these folks in corinth to to receive um, can happen and um, so leavening i I mentioned this earlier that the word for error that you translated as arrogant in chapter two um literally means to be puffed up and i think he i think he's setting us up for this illustration then about leavening because that's what leavening does Right? It takes mm. takes what's small, and it um, you know if it's yeast, it expands. This was a big part of the Passover uh, meal because the time was short; they had to leave immediately. Um, that there wasn't time for um, the bread to leaven. And then by the time of of Paul's writing, uh, in Paul's own training as a as a Pharisee, there there's actually a ritual. It's in the Mishnahs. There's a ritual about cleaning out the house before the Passover. They'd go around with the lamp and they'd try to find anything, all the different kinds of yeast or leavening um, and, and make sure that was all cleaned out. So they ritualistically actually would do this um, on at the Feast of the Passover. And so this is a maybe an illustration that doesn't resonate as much with us who don't have that uh, experience as part of our you know religious life. 
Um, but I imagine for uh, you know a Jew living in Corinth, now uh, who's now a Christian, they would know this, and this would be quite vivid to them. Oh yeah, this is like when we would go around and we would have to clean out the whole house of that which would corrupt the whole. And so that's what I was talking about with um, sexual sin being divisive of the whole congregation. I think that's what Paul's getting after here, is that if we if we allow this behavior to continue, it will um, you know become infectious. Well, it is infectious, and it, and it will spread. And the danger is that not only will it tear the one who's committing it uh, away from Christ, you know, and that rebellious sin, um, but it can actually tear the whole congregation apart or or away from Christ. Well, first of all, I want to illustrate or I want to point out that I love your illustration because taking that uh, what is translated as arrogant or mm-hmm. or you know haughty to mean puffed up, which is its literal translation. It'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to deny that Paul's doing that intentionally in light of how you've described it here. And yeah, it's hard for us to connect. But I think Christians, even though we may not have the advantage that the Jews had, as Paul talked about for Jews in Romans, but we have still like Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 16, quoting, you know, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yes. yes. In Mark, he says the same thing. In Luke, he says the same thing. He says that's hypocrisy, names that particular sin. But the idea that leaven represents sin and that leaven puffs up bread shouldn't be lost on even the you know Christian that's gone to Sunday school a few times. Mm-hmm. So we, we have that beautiful word picture to show us that not only are our chefs puffed up like we're boasting in ourselves, like, oh, we, we are, we're without sin even though we're wretchedly in sin. But yeah, that even even connected to the Exodus, connected to the angel of death passing over during the Passover, I think those are just beautiful illustrations that that we sometimes forget as Christians in 2022 that the Corinthian Christians, especially having previously been Jews, many of them, would have looked at that and went, oh, yeah, okay, I know what he's getting at. And yeah, I'm so glad you brought that out. Right. And the other aspect too with the Exodus, you know, it's a big picture, but the you know, I have the 10 plagues, right? It wasn't just one plague with the past, you know, the angel of death in the 10th. Um, but there were many calls to repentance and, and they do get, I, I think, progressively worse. And so there, this happens in pastoral practice, this happens in congregations, is that the, the wrong approach probably is to come straight up and say, you're living in sin. If you don't cut it out today, you know, now immediately you're out, <laughs> right? This is it. And, and they get blindsided. Um, Instead, that they that they're patiently and um, you know as patient as we can be anyway, um, and directively called to repentance, um, and it and that's I guess Matthew eighteen would be an example of that where Jesus teaches this kind of approach where you know first you talk to them privately and then you come with you know um, maybe with an elder in the church or someone else who is aware of it and then you know you work your way up you don't just immediately excommunicate uh, just like with Pharaoh I mean Moses called and th- God called Moses called, excuse me, Pharaoh to repentance through Moses, you know, 10 times. Um, and Pharaoh, his heart increasingly was hardened. And, and that's this other aspect that's probably uncomfortable here is that, you know, Paul said to, to give them over to Satan, um, that God even uses the rebellious, sinful world and, and the prince of that world, um, Satan, um, to confirm people in their sin, actually that sin would increase in them. And to the point where they're left with no more, they're not puffed up anymore. They're going to be utterly deflated, <laughs> right? Torn down, humbled, humiliated even. Um, and again, that's like the prodigal son, right? So that they, 
that they're they see their sin for what it is. They recognize the devastation and destruction that they brought upon themselves and those around them. And um, and God willing, then uh, they remember the word that was spoken to them um, that there is forgiveness in Christ, who is the Passover Lamb, and that you know death does not have to be their fate. You know they're not doomed. They can be uh, restored again, and they return back to the place where they uh, had excluded themselves. In the verses that follow, Paul, I believe, does one of his very typical, uh, I've just remembered something. So his poor scribe is writing <laughs> things down. Oh, yeah. And he's, he says something like, the one I remember is that, you know, I'm glad that I baptized none of you. Well, except for, you know, this guy and this guy and this guy. Right. Um, but so I think he does that here. He says, I wrote to you, this is verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he just sort of has this, now, I don't mean the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, because then you couldn't go anywhere. And then he says, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of those things. So right. lots to you know look at here. There's uh, three that come to mind. First is just talk a little bit about what's that letter, right? I mean, is that zero Corinthians? It's the first one. Uh, yeah. I, you know, well, we it wouldn't it be amazing if we could find that. Two, this distinction of what does it look like to not associate, and does associate maybe mean more than that, with the mm -hmm. sexually immoral of the church that are confirmed in that? And then, of course, how does this, you know, I think of, and I don't want to lay it out on the table, I guess, but I think of, you know, people in the world who want to boycott everything that they don't agree with. And while I definitely appreciate that sentiment, you end up realizing that you can't live in society. So I think those are the three things that just pop into my mind. Um, take however direction you want to, but maybe start with that letter. I wrote yeah. you in my letter. Yeah, and I, I mentioned this before, and I, it, there isn't any consistent uh, opinion on this topic as to whether there was another letter that came before 1 Corinthians or maybe a letter that comes after in between 1 and 2. It does seem that this has been a, a matter of regular correspondence and something that is, because it's so public, and it's well known, and may, and word travels. I mean, <laughs> we we think that the you know the internet has made it so that people find out about things. It's just more rapidly than it was in the ancient world. But people still found out. Uh, you know, we always have gossips with us, right? So, so that right. it it does seem like it's it's word word has gotten to him, and um, whether that was in a previous letter or he means actually in this letter grammatically, I think it can go either way. Uh, you know. Keeping company with is an interesting expression in and of itself, I suppose. Associating with, um, we could understand that. It's, it's like church membership, perhaps. And um, se sexual immorality uh, from Paul gets a very particular focus in his epistles. And this is probably another area of discomfort for us because, you know, what's the common accusation that all you, all you uh, pastors in particular care about are what's the old expression wine women and song right <laughs> right so the focus is on you know um drunkenness and sexual immorality and um the music of the church right and um, but that comes out i mean it does come out of paul because because it, it's in colossians it's in first thessalonians it's in ephesians um and probably elsewhere too galatians too so uh and then rome I, it's everywhere it seems to be a very particular sin in his focus um he was previously married right because uh, he has a mother-in-law, so we know that. And we don't know. It doesn't seem he has a wife at this point. Um, and so he, it's not that he's unexperienced in such matters. But on the other hand, I think I think he's right in recognizing that um, sexual sin is different than other kinds of sin. It doesn't. It's not any less or more damnable before God. But um, 
because it's done in the body. And I can't remember where he articulates that, but he does. It's it's done in the body in a way that, um, you know, coveting is, is in the heart, but it doesn't necessarily uh, result in action, although it can. And uh, which he mentions, right? Um, the brothers who are sexually immoral, yeah, and covetous. Very next chapter actually is where he starts to really, because again, this argument That's I think continues okay. <laughs> into the yeah. next chapter, right? But uh, yeah, he says that every other, this is verse 18 of chapter six, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he goes on to explain because your body you is the yeah. temple of the Holy Spirit. Right. And then that text, um, that's one that I don't think, I mean, you'll probably talk about this when when you study it here on the show. Uh, I think it gets a little confusing because you have to look at the second person pronouns and that they're not singular. Um, for the most part, they're, they're, they're plural. So he's talking about the body, your body, plural, meaning, uh, I think the congregation. And so it does seem that again, that sexual sin has a way of, of dividing families, dividing congregations, maybe even, I think we can see now in our world, dividing, um, society and culture. You now, uh, there's a lot of topics about, um, you know, all kinds of sexual deviancy, um, being, uh, promoted or taught in our schools and our, and, and, uh, hospitals, um, which I was looking at here in the last couple of days, our local children's hospital is, is promoting all sorts of, um, really disorderly um, behavior amongst children in a way that I think is not only abhorrent, but just, uh, and disgusting, but, but also the kind of thing that could really tear a society apart. Um, and, and so Paul's last point about, you know, being in, you know, only judging that inside and not outside is really hard for us, I think today. Because I spend a lot of time in research um, and in conversation, even with with people, on how to speak to their friends and neighbors who aren't necessarily Christian or just nominally Christian. And but unfortunately, those people are outside um, the life of the church, and so they're not all that receptive. And and Paul's direction here, both with this uh, adulterous couple or sexually immoral couple, you know, where the with the son with his mother in law, which is incredible. Um, you know, but whatever that behavior is that Paul would have us also, you know, all give them over to their desires in the way that God does, right? He gives, he gives people over to what they want. This is the whole history of Israel over and over and over. They rebel against his word. And so he lets them, lets them continue in that and until it's confirmed in them and to such a degree that they're, they, they don't even resemble God's own people in in their behavior or in faith (laughs) ultimately. And yet then he, you know, there are a few, there's always a remnant. There's a few that call out to him um, and he calls them to repentance and they hear the word again and they weep, you know, think Nehemiah or something like that. Uh, and then he restores them again. And it's like the whole, the whole life of the church and of the individual Christian, of uh, Christian families is, you know, this picture of death and resurrection of repentance and forgiveness. And what, what Paul's trying to arrest here is, is the idea that there is a time where you don't need to repent <laughs> or there's sin that doesn't need repentance. And uh, that's the life inside the church is one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins each and every day, each week in divine service, right? And that's what distinguishes it from the world where, where there is no need for repentance in the world because they, they live according to their own law um, you know, and according to their own hearts. Well, we could continue dividing up and uh, unpacking this entire text. There's so much to be said, but I tell you what, we're at the end of the show. So I would like to invite you, as you alluded to earlier, 
you know, share the gospel with our, you know, especially right now, refresh our hearts, brother, pastor, or, uh, those who are listening, share a little word of gospel with them and equip them maybe to share that same gospel with their neighbor. I think the key here for us as, as Christians is to recognize um, that we, we know what, what is immoral and unjust. And in this, in this particular case, um, sexual sin and that we're we're not afraid to speak that truth in love according to the law, but that you know, as uh, God's word directs us, that we never leave people in their sin. Um, only only when that rebellion and hardness of heart, um, last resort, must be done. Um, but normally, that we are then given you know uh, repentant folks, you know whether it's family or friends or people in our church, that then desperately, uh, having been convicted by the word of the law, need to hear the word of forgiveness. Um, and that word comes in Christ, right? Who is our Passover lamb. And he what casts out the unleavened, or excuse me, the leavening in us and makes us again unleavened, that is uh, forgiven, holy, set apart by God, um, unlike the world, um, but yet in the world. And, and then as a testimony to our neighbors um, of, of really what a, what a better life uh, can be, a life lived according to God's word, um, which is good for us and good for our communities and our congregations. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Christopher Gillespie, pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Random Lake, Wisconsin. Pastor, thank you for being on the show. I hope you'll join us again. I hope I can too. Excellent. I'm also grateful to you, dear Christian, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow, Friday, as we continue in 1 Corinthians with chapter 6. We'll also dip into the listener mailbag. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong heart.